credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's even here, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Yet another food. Uh, well, I was going to classify this. I don't think this belongs with our food, like coffee beans mm, no. and Cake. stuff like that. But food industry. Sure. Sweet. Can't stop. Can't stop. Can't stop talking about food. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is more, um, yeah, food industry, <clears throat> like... Um, Massive problem the world faces now, that kind of thing. It's it's in that suite, like the huge problem suite. Right. That's where <laughs> yeah, I would boy, put we get it. a lot of those. Yeah, we do. And it's growing every day, unfortunately, because we haven't solved a single one, Chuck, even though we've tried. I know. We're trying. But what we're talking about today are called ultra-processed foods. And a lot of people say, you mean junk food? And yeah, it is junk food, but it's applying science and public health to the idea of what to do about junk food. Because as people look into it more and more, they find more and more evidence that it's as bad for you as you think it is, maybe even worse. But it's also painfully obvious that it's so fully entrenched in cultures around the world that it's not going anywhere. We're not going to get rid of, you can't just get rid of junk food. People survive on junk food, as we'll see. Um, but so we have to figure out then how to balance those two things, the presence of junk food and the the harm that junk food can do to your health. Yeah. And, you know, I would even say, and I'm sure you would agree that calling it junk food, uh, I think a lot of people might think like, well, I don't eat uh, Cheetos. And I hate that we're going to have to just rattle off brands like that. I love a Cheeto every now and then. Sure. Cheese puffs are the crunchy kind. Oh, no, no, no. The 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 ones that look like little caveman clubs. <laughs> they do look like that, too. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to uh, – I didn't eat many Cheetos then either just because we didn't have no money to buy Cheetos. We oh. had whatever the uh, off-brand was that came in, like, gigantic bags. Cho-chos. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but I hate that we're going to have to name brands here and there like that as reference, but let's just say Cheetos. Uh, but people might think, oh, I don't eat Cheetos, so I'm good. Uh, that's not true, though. There are a lot of foods that – you probably eat that you don't realize you may not call junk food. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the back of the package, you're like, oh, wait a minute. There's like 14 ingredients and two of them sound like food. Yeah. And that's a really good indicator that what you're eating is ultra processed food. Um, and that actual that term ultra processed food, you may have heard before, but it's a relatively recent development. Yeah. I think it was 2010 when a, a Brazilian epidemiologist named Carlos Montero came up with it as part of like a four-point um, food group. It was pretty obvious, but sure. It was, but what he did was not obvious. It was actually pretty revolutionary because at the time in Brazil in 2010 and still today in the United States and plenty of other countries, there was a focus on, on the food groups as we know them, like grains and um, cereals, fruits and yeah. vegetables, sure, fish, the meat. 
dairy, that kind of stuff, right? There's, we still talk about that here today in the United States. So what this guy said was like, that is so ridiculously confusing, and it's such a, a, a problem to keep up with that I, I'm going to basically take it upon myself to reclassify food into easier-to-understand stuff. And that's where he came up with ultra-processed food. But he actually came up with it from an observation, Chuck, that was kind of like a mystery at first. That sounds like a setup to me. Take it, Chuck. <laughs> Just so people know, we don't write down, set Chuck up for the next bit. No, no. It's just very organic. It is, and it's getting clunkier as we're entering our <laughs> 14th and 15th year. <laughs> organic and clunky. <laughs> Rather than taking uh, it yeah. as a setup, you're like, sounds like a setup. <laughs> yeah, he did notice something. He realized that the purchase of actual sugar by Brazilians had gone down a lot mm -hmm. between the 1980s and 2000s, but obesity and type 2 diabetes were still on the rise. And I guess he thought it's almost as if they're getting all that sugar from other things that aren't just bags of sugar. Right. And so he looked to the, to the packaged food industry and uh, came up with a system to classify it. And never has there been a, a system that should be an acronym that's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so frustrating. It's even capitalized, NOVA, N-O-V-A. I'm like, what does it stand for? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right. Not your ordinary variant analysis. Eh. Eh. Yeah, I worked on it even. <laughs> That's what I could come up with. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. No, I think the reason he chose NOVA is because NOVA means new star. Um, mm -hmm. So I think he was saying, like, this is providing, like, a new North Star to guide people toward nutrition, I guess. Or that he is the new star of talking about food. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's what he talks about himself as, for sure. Uh, so I guess we should talk about the four groups. Uh, group one is what you might call, like, whole foods, which are uh, – it's just food. It's unprocessed. It's – fruit and it's meat and it's the eggs and stuff like that, uh, you know, comes out of a chicken's butt and into your mouth. Hopefully there's something in between that happens, though. <laughs> right. And that's that's a good point, too, because people be like, well, meat's processed. Yes, group one also includes minimally processed foods. So the distinction isn't that it's totally unprocessed. Right. The distinction is, is that it's substantially intact, hasn't been pulled apart and put back together again. And it's nutrient composition as it exists in the cow that's walking around or the chicken that's walking around or the plant that's growing remains basically the same in this form, this minimally processed form. That's right. That's group one. That's what you should shoot for. Uh, group two are processed foods, a little more processed. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about oils, uh, packaged herbs. These are things that are used as ingredients or things to cook other things. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you put group one and group two together, what you're doing is cooking and you're yeah. coming up with basically group three foods. And basically anything that you cook in your kitchen using normal ingredients, even things like cakes and cookies and things like that, if you're using sugar and butter um, and basically whole foods from groups one or two, you're, you're coming up with group three, which are processed foods but they're, rec they're recommended processed foods. So the kind of foods that you're making yourself or if you're buying it at the store, it's being, it's being processed in a way that is still retaining as much of the nutrients as possible with as few additional ingredients as possible. And the ingredients, like you were saying before, you can, you can understand what they're, what they're saying in the ingredient list. Yeah, like if you see... Uh... Uh, uh, some strawberry preserves on the shelf of a grocery store, and it says, and this is uh, this is actually in our research, and something we'll point out later again, probably. But food brands are starting to tout stuff like this. Like I bought some. Uh, it's uh, we don't get eat a lot of like frozen treats, like ice cream and stuff. But I got some because it's summertime. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get my daughter some like uh, a little treat, you know, a little frozen treat, like some fruit pops. Okay. And when you go down the fruit pop aisle. That, that aisle especially is made up of things where they'll say, like, three ingredients in big letters on the front, like, mm -hmm. you know, cane sugar and water and real fruit. And partially uh, extruded weirdness. <laughs> yeah, that's the third ingredient. <laughs> uh, but that would be a group three. And there are, you know, I think the, the bell has been ringing, so food companies are, are beginning to tout things like fewer ingredients here and there. 
so they don't fall into group four, which is the ultra processed foods that we're going to talk about today. And these are, you know, contain a lot of engineered ingredients. Uh, when you look at the back, that's when you're going to see things like soy protein and high hydrogenated fats and things like that and things you can't even pronounce. Right. Um, and the longer the list of ingredients is, the likelier it is to be in group four. Um, the the more difficult to understand ingredients are probably in group four. And then also, even without um, looking at the ingredient list, you can usually catch a group four type ultra processed food um, because it's heavily marketed. There's lots of colors and neat logos and stuff like that. And you've seen yeah. ads for it on TV. Maybe a cartoon character. That is definitely a hallmark, right? That's a definite hallmark of ultra processed foods. Um, so you can usually just tell from the packaging. And then to kind of meet the industry where it's going to, um, some people who are into the Nova system of food groups say, actually, if you see a packaged food or a pre-prepared food that is making health claims, you should actually take that as a signal that it's not actually healthy, that that healthy foods don't have to tout that kind of stuff. <laughs> Unhealthy foods are the ones that you have to watch out for when they say healthy, low fat, all that stuff. It actually means it's ultra processed. Right. Like you won't see a bunch of bananas with a sticker that says now with more potassium. No. And if you want to kind of imagine what the difference is between you know, where we are um, between ultra-processed foods and actual whole foods. Like, imagine Mountain Dew. The Mountain Dew logo, all of the Mountain Dew advertising you've ever heard. You remember they used to say it was extreme with just an X? That is like classic ultra-processed food marketing. Yeah, now imagine, for kids. Yes, for sure. Now, imagine that same ad campaign was for pears, like it'll right. make your brain do a somersault just trying <laughs> to even it, just yeah. trying to come up with it, and that look at that shape. It, it really kind of brings into stark contrast the difference between ultra processed foods and whole foods from groups one, two, or three. Yeah, it's pretty sad, and it's they've been. Uh, I mean, there's some staggering facts in here. The first one that I came across was right here on our first page, where it says that. Uh, in the U.S. and the U.K., ultra-processed foods make up more than half of the calories that we eat, period. Uh, and they are on the rise. Uh, they've, they've shown that uh, the percentage of adults, U.S. adults, uh, diets that are consist of uh, UPFs or ultra-processed foods went from 535 to 57, and that's from, let's say, 2002 to 2017, mm -hmm. uh, which is a long time, but you know, a four percentage point rise in like a total caloric intake is is substantial. Yeah. And that means that since it was at 53.5% already, American adults have gotten at least half of their calories for more than 20 years, at least half of their calories from junk food for more than two decades. And that's just the adults. Like if you look into studies of ultra processed foods, by far, the largest consumers of them are younger kids, in particular younger boys. So if our if adults are getting that much, I mean, it just makes you wonder how much how much kids are getting, and it just so happens that that's our next stat. <laughs> uh, yeah, kids over an eighteen year period from ninety nine to two thousand eighteen, uh, they went from sixty one percent to sixty seven percent, and they found that you know it's generally across. All races, save one, which is pretty amazing and awesome. Uh, Hispanic adults mm -hmm. don't eat nearly as much ultra-processed foods as other people. Uh, and they've also found that it's basically across um, income demographics, although lower income uh, people with lower incomes do eat more UPFs. But it has been rising across almost all demographics. Yeah, and um, globally, too. Like, the U.S. has long been feeding our kids and eating ourselves the um, ultra-processed foods. Um, but it's long been kind of a hallmark of a wealthier country, ironically, because ultra-processed foods are so cheap compared to whole foods. Um but in other countries, as they started to develop more and more economically, um, their intake of ultra-processed foods has increased in step two. So you see ultra-processed foods making up a larger and larger share of the caloric intake of all people around the world. It's becoming a, a new kind of diet that wherever you go in the world, you're going to be able to find basically the same food, and it's 
wrapped in extreme packaging and contained something that was extruded and dusted with something that used to be cheese. (laughs) All right. That's a great setup. Uh, Let's take a break and we'll talk a little bit about where or at least what some people consider the Big Bang of UPFs started right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. By the way, Chuck, extrusion, uh, I was like, I think I know what that is. I just want to make sure. You remember the um, the Play-Doh Fun Factory? It sure. Had, like that thing that you, you put the Play-Doh in one end and then you pulled the lever and it squeezed out in like a star shape or a moon shape. That, the extruder. That's extrusion, yes. But they never <laughs> called it. 
the extruder in my day. They call it the fun factory. (laughs) The star maker. Sure. Uh, All right. So if you want to look to where some people consider the Big Bang, or at least uh, as um, Anastasia Marks de Salcedo. Yeah? Mm. Salcedo? Yes. Yes. Nice. Uh, Anastasia is a journalist who wrote a book called Combat Ready Kitchen, colon, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat, and uh, lays claim to the fact that World War II was, is uh, known, at least to this journalist, as the Big Bang of ultra-processed foods and that revolution. Uh, we should point out this is nothing new. Uh, canning, I, I realize, comes from a competition that was used or held to help feed Napoleon's army. Mm -hmm. So there's been a long history of food R&D when it comes to feeding lots and lots of soldiers on the battlefield in in a way that makes sense because, you know, you obviously have to have food that's not going to spoil, stuff that light and that travels. And Mm -hmm. um, what it kind of comes down to is getting rid of as much water as you can from food. Right, because that prevents spoilage. It's like you said, makes it lighter, so it's easier to ship and move around. Um, but it still should retain mostly the same nutrient density, which is what you're really after. Um, and that's that's a huge, huge thing that kind of came out of World War II, I believe, um, which was drying food, learning to dry not just food, but also coffee. Um, and apparently, all of that that drying process came out of. Um, uh, a way to to dry and store plasma for later yeah. use. And they said, you know what would, would also go the, through this process really well? Coffee. That was it. Pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. There was some, that, I mean, that is just one tiny little fact. I think the one that really got me was mm-hmm. uh, something like the McRib was actually born out of this same military research into something called, and this is an album title if I've ever heard one, <laughs> Fabricated Modules of Meat. That's a Diarrhea Planet album. <laughs> oh, man. They're not together anymore. We heard from people. I, I think I knew they weren't together, but... They'll always be together in my heart. <laughs> uh, and this is very interesting, too. What they've um, started doing was found out a way to remove or what to end up with something called intermediate moisture foods. Yeah, that's huge. So if you think of like a, a chewy granola bar, uh, that thing is chewy. It's not super dry, but it's not super wet. And the power bar is something that was born directly from World War II. Mm-hmm. There was something called a Logan bar <laughs> that was packed in the you know soldiers' kits as a meal replacement, but it was designed purposefully to not taste very good, <laughs> so the soldiers wouldn't just like dive in after it. It's, it's sort of like a last resort thing. Yeah, and there therein lies the power bar. So if you're ever like these things taste terrible, you can thank exactly. the U.S. Army for deliberately making them taste terrible, so that you don't want to eat them. Like you know, like their kudos. Remember kudos? Oh yeah, I loved a kudo. They were great. They were like a cross between a candy bar and a granola bar, and they yeah. somehow were <laughs> greater than the sum of all its parts. <laughs> and those were the kind of things that you're like, oh, I like this. I think I'll have the rest of the box. And that's a, another hallmark of ultra processed foods, as we'll see. Uh, I think, though, we can now not avoid it any longer. We need to talk about processed cheese and cheese dust. Yeah. Uh, what the Army ended up calling jungle cheese because they developed a new way to make cheese. The people had been making cheese for millennia, and it was great, but it didn't travel well. And so the Army, or I guess, you know, the military-industrial complex said, let's find a way to make better cheese that can travel, and they did it. They did. So one of the huge challenges was is as you dry out cheese, if you don't do it right, the oil separates out of the cheese. It becomes sweaty, and the cheese you have left Ugh. with is oilless and dry and not good at all. So somebody figured out, there was a, an actual guy, George Sanders, who was a USDA dairy scientist. In 1943, he figured out that if you dry the cheese at really low temperatures, the protein actually encapsulates the lipids, the fats, and locks them in place. So then after that, you can pulverize it and dry it even further, and the fat will stay locked into it. And then you can take that, and you can either turn it into powder, or you can reconstitute it into whatever shape you want, specifically sliced cheese, which is those yellow squares of cheese. That's what happens to them. Yeah, but when it came to the powder, like if you've ever made that, delicious, still delicious Kraft mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. 
and not the kind with the the Packets? real squeezy cheese. Yeah, I'm talking that yellow orange powder, and you dump it in there with a little butter, maybe a little heavy cream if you really want to treat yourself. Sure. And you wonder what the heck is this? It is cheese. It's just treat cheese that has been ultra processed. Uh, thanks to George Sanders, and he would shred it up and then dry it out, and then it would harden up, and then he would grind it and then dehydrate it even more. And eventually you do that over and over, and you get down to that beautiful orange powder. Yeah, what's confusing is, is there seems to be a, a discrepancy between who first invented cheese powder. Was it George Saunders in 1943? Um, if so, then how did Kraft come out with their macaroni and cheese or craft dinner if you're in Canada um, back in 1937 with powdered cheese. So it's weird. There's a there's a weird misunderstanding around who created cheese powder, but it does seem to have come about in the either the late 1930s, early 1940s, possibly through military uh, research. But it was 1948 that we got our first cheese dust snack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when the Frito Company I guess, I mean, was it a Cheeto or was was it like a cheesy Frito? My friend, it was a Cheeto. It was a Cheeto? Okay. Or a Cho-Cho as what you grew up with. Uh, I I worked with a director years ago, Tom Schiller, who was the, um, you remember the black and white SNL shorts from the Belushi days? Yeah, he was uh, like Al Franken's writing partner, I think. Yeah, I I was like Schiller's kind of head PA when he came to town. He would request me because we were buddies. Uh, and he was great with like one of the best dudes I ever worked for. But he, as a gag, would um, he didn't even like Cheetos, but he would eat Cheetos on set with a, a white surgical glove <laughs> just to make people laugh. <laughs> That's funny. There's these little finger protectors that look like tiny condoms that you put on your fingertips. Uh huh. And I used to use those to eat <laughs> buffalo wings just for effect. Uh, well, but that also has a practical effect because that that sting can go to other places, you know. If you rub your eyes or... Oh, sure, sure, sure. But I still bathroom. rub my eyes with little finger condoms on anyway. I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm, just, no. I'm just that dumb. No, you got to take those things off. <laughs> I, I forget every time. Don't or I accidentally dumb. swallow one when I'm licking my fingers. I don't get the hot wings. Uh, I haven't eaten a, a buffalo wing in years. Oh, Chuck, you're missing out. I get the lemon pepper now if I get anything. Mm, okay, that's good too. But I think you can mix it up a little bit. All right, they, they always... Uh, This is no good for my digestive system. So you said something that I think is, um, well, I I hope your digestive system comes back around so you can eat some buffalo wings. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, But you said something a little while back that I think is worth kind of fleshing out, and that is that this stuff that's cheese dust used to be cheese. It's actually made from real cheese. Yeah. And that is um, an argument that a lot of people make when people poo-poo junk food, ultra-processed food, that kind of stuff. They're like, there's, there, it basically amounts to you're afraid of science is, is what you're responding to. This is still mm-hmm. food. In some cases, it's more nutritional than the whole food it was made from. Yeah. Um, so what's the problem? And we'll get into that whole thing, but I just wanted to kind of point that out because you did, yeah. I mean, you did hit on something that's that's worth worth saying. Yeah, we're just Luddites. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sure, that's, that's I, I'm a convert though um, through some of this one particular study that we'll talk about that I think is very mind-changing. Ooh, all right. That's a nice uh, tease. But first, Chuck, I think we have to talk about corn because you can't really do all this. You can't make very cheap, ultra-processed foods without very cheap base ingredients. And corn is about as cheap as they come in the United States. It is now because they, over the years, figured out how to grow corn much more efficiently uh, and much more densely. Uh, The 1920s and 30s is when they started to develop these new strains of corn. The corn ears themselves are actually bigger. And they could pack them in a lot more. And I believe between the 30s and the 2000s, an acre of corn yield jumped from 30 bushels to about 140. (laughs) That's crazy. Which is a big, I mean, what is that, a fourfold increase? A little more, actually. Yeah, it's like uh, four, almost Almost five. five. Yeah, we we did it. We got there. (laughs) They got there, or we got there math-wise, but they got there corn-wise. And now corn is the largest crop in the United States. Uh, it accounts for about 25% of all crop sales mm-hmm. in the U.S., with about a, only about a third of that being used for actual food uh, and some other industrial uses uh, that don't include 
ethanol or livestock feed. Right, right. But because we're feeding most of that corn to our livestock and then we eat the livestock, well, we're sure. in turn still consuming the corn. <laughs> yeah, we in just, a very young one's way. <laughs> right, sure. But we, um, I didn't get that, but I love the young ones, so nice. <laughs> um, but we, so but the reason corn is so profitable and so well-grown and so tinkered with is because it's so heavily subsidized in the United States. Like the government will pay you to grow corn. Sometimes they'll pay you to stop growing other crops to grow corn. Um, and you, if, if your crop goes bad, they'll give you money for it because you tried to grow corn. It's just extremely uh, subsidized, which means that um, there's always a market for it. You're always going to be able to sell it. So lots and lots of people grow corn. So that's what we use as our staple crop to, to make almost all of our other food from. And that was um, discussed at length in the, the really great book, Dorito Effect by Mark Schatzker, which we talked about in our junk food episode. Because remember, we did one just right. on junk food. This is oh, yeah. different. Right. <laughs> this is slightly different. Uh, we grew a little corn growing up um, a couple of times. I think it was kind of a pain. Mm -hmm. So we didn't end up doing it more than like once or twice. But we had a, a very robust garden over about an acre. Nice. Uh, I lived out in the woods like a, you know, like a yokel. I've talked about canning our own food and stuff. Yeah. But um, corn was something we grew a little bit every now and then. How much do you want to talk about high fructose corn syrup? I mean, we did a whole episode on it. All right. So how much do you want to get into this? Should we tell people how it's done again? Yeah, I don't know that we ever talked about how it's made, did we? It seemed sure. all new to me. No, we talked about it. We had to have. But, I mean, it's a typical, it's a good, great example of, wow, you really just shifted from this corn story of you growing it to whether or not we're going to talk about high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> it was like a whiplash. And now we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, clunky. Like, clunky. In year 14. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't, why don't you go over it then? Because I'm, I'm done with it. No, I'm just kidding. Um <laughs> You should talk about it, though, because it is pretty interesting. Yeah, and the reason why it's so interesting is because high fructose corn syrup is just one of the many things that are made out of a single, like, batch of corn kernels. That's what makes it such a great, like, poster child for ultra-processed foods. Because yeah. out of, you know, a single kernel of corn, you get everything from um, the, like, corn oil from the germ, um, from the, the fiber from the shell gets sent off to be used in breakfast cereal. So if you see, like, corn bran or corn fiber or something like that, it was separated out from what eventually became high-fructose corn syrup. Um, the stuff that's left over is corn starch and corn gluten and gluten gets fed to the livestock. And the corn starch you could just use around your kitchen. They use it in building materials. Um, and that you can also use it to create high fructose corn syrup. So just that one process of taking some of that corn converts it into all these different things from building products to high fructose corn syrup to cattle feed um, just with this one type of corn. Dent corn is what it's called. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things where you wish... HFCS wasn't so bad mm -hmm. for you and in everything because when you look at that process that you just described, it's hard not to sit back and just and as science, food science, and pat themselves on the back, yeah, and just say what a amazing process we developed that all of this stuff is being used in all these different areas, and in the end, we, we get our evil ingredient. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but, I mean, not all of it is evil. Like, um, if you've ever had a cardboard box that you had trouble pulling apart to recycle <clears throat> because the adhesive was so strong, you can bet that was made with cornstarch. The adhesive? Yeah, the adhesive, industrial okay. adhesives. Um, the, some of them power some of our machinery. Ethanol is made from a lot of corn. So it, it, there, it is like a real, like, you know, pat on the back for science, like you were saying. It's just that nutrition science, as we'll see, has not figured out how to, how to take that stuff and, and make it uh, work for humans the way that we can make a machine work with ethanol derived from corn. Yeah, and I think where they... Uh, I was about to say where they erred, but they would say this was the genius part of it, mm -hmm. was the corn syrup that they end up with after all those processes uh, has, is dextrose, basically. And if they would have stopped there, it might not have been so bad, but they went, dextrose just isn't as sweet as we need it to be. Mm -hmm. It doesn't taste like that sweet, sweet sucrose. So let's make it sweeter. Let's process it more and add an enzyme to it and some uh, some pressure and some temperature and 
bada bing, bada boom, we'll turn it into fructose. And that sort of, that that final step of the process is really where it nutritionally went wrong, I think. Well, yeah, because don't forget to add the hydrochloric acid to turn it into fructose too, you know? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of one of the first steps, right? Uh, that's, or is that toward the end? That's where you, uh, when you add like pressure and heat and everything, I believe uh, okay, that's, right, that's right. where it converts it. So, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's the epitome of what people call like frankenfood. And it's really, really easy to tee off on if you're a whole food proponent. And there are a lot of whole food propo- pro- proponents. They got a ton of traction, especially in like the early 2000s, early 2010s, thanks in large part to Michael Pollan's uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, which came out in 2007 and basically introduced everybody to the concept that like we're eating all wrong, essentially. I want to point out that's your that was your second Al Franken reference. <laughs> Tom Schiller's writing partner, and then Franken food. Was that that was not an Al Franken reference? <laughs> oh, was it? No. Although now I'm, Al Franken I'm, picturing, I'm picturing him like eating like Lucky Charms, and the couple are just like falling out of his mouth onto his shirt. <laughs> uh, I have a joke there, but I can't tell it. So. Uh, yeah, The Omnivore's Dilemma. There were a few other books that followed for Michael Pollan, mm-hmm. uh, In Defense of Food, very big book, uh, and then Food Rules and one called Cooked about eight or nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been anywhere and seen this slogan on a wall, on a poster, um, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, that comes from Michael Pollan, and that has become a bit of a rallying cry for the the eat better whole foods movement uh eat food like you know food food mm-hmm. and don't eat too much of it and try to mostly eat plants and if you literally do that then you're probably going to have a pretty good diet yeah and they have some other like rules of thumb too like don't eat food that your great grandmother wouldn't recognize as food um yeah. which means you could still eat oreos cuz they've been around since the 19th century <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. Um, also, I think we've talked about how grocery stores are laid out before, at least in a video, if not an episode, um, and how if you hug the outside perimeter, you're going to get the whole foods. It's the the, the middle aisles that the processed foods take up. That's another yeah, good one. Yeah, we just talked too. about that. Um, and then avoid foods with like more than five ingredients. It's a little restrictive, but you get the point. The fewer the ingredients, the likelier it is to just be whole foods without a whole bunch of added stuff and tinkering and engineering to make it taste the way it's supposed to taste. Yeah, and there's also, you know, we should talk just for a second about the other thing wrapped up in this, which is food culture. Um, Poland and, uh, is it Montiero? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, or Montero. Montero? Mm-hmm. They both talk a lot about food culture, which is not just the things you're putting in your mouth, but how you look at food and dining in general, which is to say that they believe, and I would tend to agree probably, Mm -hmm. that too many people these days are just grabbing food as they quickly move about life from appointment to appointment or commitment to commitment, rather than the days where you could cook a meal and sit down as a family and eat it together. Uh, And he's not just saying like, you know, this is good for the family, even though it is. They're just talking about just societal and cultural, uh, I guess, norms and how they've changed over the years and Mm -hmm. how we should strive to sort of get back to that. Because chances are, if you're sitting down at a table with your family and you're eating together, you're probably not, you know, dumping a bunch of chicken nuggets on a plate. (laughs) Probably not. You may. That's what we did in the 70s, sort of. Even if you are, though, it's still probably preferable to eating them in the car while you're hurrying, you know, to piano practice or something like that. At least you're sitting down together. So there's that aspect of culture to it. One of the problems, though, Chuck, is if you've ever, you know, taken steps to replace some of your ultra-processed foods with some, you know, whole foods that you cook yourself— the dis- the difference in time that it takes to prepare yeah. those foods is really significant, and it can be really tough. And that just kind of goes to underscore why ultra-processed foods have become so ubiquitous. They fit really, really well into our current culture of, like, go, go, go. Go get another thing done. Sign up for another extracurricular activity. Like, um, you can eat these foods, like, anywhere. They're available anywhere. And um, they you can basically just snack throughout the whole day. You'll never even need to eat a meal. And you can do it in your car the whole time while you're going from place to place. Yeah, I mean, 
that's one of the the big criticisms of people like uh, Poland and Montiero, which is like, who was cooking this stuff back in the day? It was probably a housewife mm -hmm. in the kitchen mm -hmm. or a domestic servant or previous to that and, you know, previous years enslaved people. And it's really easy to sort of sit back and say, if you're in a certain income bracket and say, hey, slow down, cook your meal, um, you're going to get criticized probably. It comes across as a little tone deaf, mm -hmm. especially when uh, Poland says something that he said in 2009 in an article that uh, 70s femi feminists uh, thoughtlessly trampled the pleasures of cooking in their rush to get women out of the kitchen. Um, he sure did say that men should well. also cook, but like – you can't lob out a statement like that and not expect blowback. Like someone has to cook these meals and yeah. to income families. It's like, it's, it's tough. There's not a lot of time to do that and to shop for these foods. So we see why it's a problem basically. Definitely. And there's more problems too, you know, that you could use to critique the whole idea of, you know, eating whole foods and all of the extra time and effort it takes. Um, but I say we take a break and then we come back and we talk about, the health benefits or problems of UPFs. Let's do it. Okay. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. 
I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Chuck, so there's uh, there's one thing um, that a lot of people say is, like, there's some foods out there that are more nutritious for you in their ultra-processed form than they would be if you made it yourself. Um, the problem seems to be this, that there's become a focus on nutrients, like the whole fat-free thing back in, like, the 80s and early 90s, right. uh, the low-carb thing. Like, we focus on nutrients, and food has not has become not food anymore in its ultra-processed form. It's become, I saw it described as a, a, a delivery system for nutrients. We're just obsessed right. with nutrients. That's what you see touted on the packages of ultra-processed food that you're supposed to kind of take as a warning signal to stay away from. The problem is, is that it's becoming more and more apparent that we can engineer food all we want, but we don't understand the dynamic of how nutrients within a food interact with one another to faithfully recreate them. And so the food that we're creating is substantially less healthy than the whole food versions of it. The, the way that Montero puts it is that ultra-processed foods are intrinsically unhealthy. Even if you don't compare them to anything else, if you eat ultra-processed foods, you're going to suffer greater health problems than you would if you didn't eat or eat ate less amounts of ultra-processed foods. And that is the entire problem with ultra-processed foods right now. Well, and that goes lockstep with the fact that they are engineered to be, um, I guess he calls it hyper-palatable formations. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're sold in large servings, and they're easy to eat a, a lot of, and they're made to be easy to eat a lot of. Uh, they've actually looked at, like, the structure of some of these processed foods. They make it harder to feel satisfied. Like, you literally chemically aren't achieving satiation as quickly with these foods, so you're going to eat more of them. Mm -hmm. That's why somebody can sit down and eat a sleeve of Pringles <laughs> with the TV on without really thinking about it. Or those intermediate moisture foods that are chewy right. and stay chewy for five years on the shelf. Like, yeah. they found that you, with ultra-processed foods, you typically chew less. And one of the ways that we become satiated, one of the ways that our body knows that it's full is, I guess it counts the number of times that we chew. And just because we're chewing less and we're eating more, that in and of itself makes ultra-processed foods less healthy yeah. than whole foods. But... Critics of the anti-ultra-processed food camp, pro even proponents of ultra-processed food say, okay, that, that's a problem, and that's something that can be designed out. The, if you put nutrient against nutrient, if you put fiber against fiber, calorie against calorie, um, uh, um, you know, vitamin D against vitamin D in whole foods and ultra-processed foods, they're basically the same thing. People might eat too many ultra-processed foods. Maybe you don't chew as much. But still, if, if, we ch if we change that, they would be the same. And that was the big critique on Montero and ultra-processed foods in general for almost 10 years until a really, really important study came out in 2019. Yeah. Um, uh, out of um, what was the, the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases right. in Maryland? So this guy, it was a, a, a study led by Kevin Hall, Chuck, and it's considered the gold standard of um, of nutritional studies. It was a randomized control trial with just twenty participants, but it was so well designed that there's basically no critics of its methodology or findings. It's just roundly touted as finally evidence that ultra-processed foods are, like Montero said, intrinsically unhealthy. Yeah, and we should point out they did this study uh, with just the 20 people because before this, everything you would ever read about UPFs were correlative studies and meta-analyses among huge, huge populations. Mm -hmm. 
So they Kevin Hall actually dug in on a smaller level. Uh, and like you said, 20 people spent two weeks uh, and they were eating either almost all ultra-processed foods or almost all unprocessed foods. Mm-hmm. But the key here, like you were talking about, is they matched these diets. Uh, calorically, they matched it. Their protein, their fiber, their fats and sugars, they tried to match them so they were basically equal. And then they said, all right, 20 people, uh, you 10 go and eat however much you want, and you 10 go eat however much you want. And then they rated those diets uh, in the end, just this was, of course, subjective, but they they rated them as equally as good tasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the ultra-processed food people ate 500 extra calories per day. Yes. So that's like eating an extra Big Mac a day. Imagine if every day you just also ate an extra Big Mac on top of everything else you <laughs> Sounds ate. Sounds so good. Or an extra <laughs> an extra Taco Bell beefy five-layer burrito, if uh, you're yeah, into that. It's getting even better. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good in moderation in, in, on occasion, but eating one every single day yeah, is— Yeah, on top of the food that you ate. That's problematic. And so yeah. they, they also found, Chuck, that the people who—, um, who uh, were in the ultra-processed food group, they gained about two pounds over the two weeks while the control group lost about two pounds. Yeah. So they found, like, no, this is actually... This this stuff is is actually when you compare apples to apples, the ultra processed food is actually unhealthier. Like it was finally proven, what what basically everyone suspected. But because it hadn't been proven, there was room to argue against it. And since then, it's become harder and harder to argue in favor of ultra processed foods, at least as they exist today. Yeah, there. I mean, that's just like how healthy they are. There are all kinds of environmental concerns. Uh, we've talked a lot about um, biodiversity, agrobiodiversity, mm-hmm. and putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, Crop-wise is really bad if disease comes along. Yeah. Like we've seen it happen time and time again through history. And we're at the point now, this is another sort of fact of the show for me. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of edible plant species, but more than half of the calories that humans on planet Earth consume come from rice, corn, and wheat. That's it. I noticed that I mean, you, that's putting your that's not agrobiodiversity. No, it's putting all of your corn in one basket. That's right, which is a good way to carry corn. It, it is. Um not knocking the basket. No, it's particularly a green and yellow basket. That's right. Um but agrobiodiversity bio, is it's an extra concern because it's kind of like by limiting our diet globally, we're also um we're not only harming our health, we're harming the ecosystems of Earth's health as well. Um, and then in addition to that, all of that slick packaging and, um, and and wrappers and all that, those require natural resources to make, and they are automatically converted into waste after you are sold that, that ultra-processed food. And yeah. if you consider Earth's natural processes as belonging to all humankind, it can kind of start to tick you off that there's companies out there that are using these natural resources to market their extremely unhealthy foods to to immediately be converted into waste. It's yeah. kind of irksome, you know? It is. Uh, as for Montero and Brazil, they have made some big changes. Uh, about eight years ago in 2014, their government um, created basically a, a whole new health guideline kind of based on this NOVA framework. And they don't categorize foods according to like how much fat they have and how much fiber and how many other nutrients they have. They base it on that NOVA framework and talk about food culture a lot. They say to eat regularly and carefully in appropriate environments and whenever possible in company. Like, you know, you've got people with you. Mm -hmm. And some other countries uh, have followed suit over there, Peru, uh, Uruguay, Ecuador. Uh, France has jumped on board as far as saying just try and avoid ultra-processed foods altogether or at least try and limit them. Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen it as much in the U.S. aside from what I mentioned earlier, which is certain – Certain manufacturers sort of seeing the future and knowing where this is headed and trying to, I guess, get ahead of the curve and tout how few ingredients they have. Sure. 
one of the problems is in the U.S. The the so Brazil said like this is our new thing. These are our food groups. Montero's Nova system. That's what we do in the U.S. We're still doing those that food pyramid kind of thing. And the right. USDA, from what I can tell, has no official position on ultra processed foods or how much we should eat or not eat. And, they will at some point. Well, apparently back in the seventies, George McGovern from either South or North Dakota tried to get the government to issue guidelines saying, like, you should eat less red meat and dairy, I think, because there were studies coming out that that were saying it was bad for you. And he got ousted from office in the next election because of that by the Cattle Association. And it kicked off a long trend to where food producers lobby the government to not take official Mm -hmm. positions against something. Instead, they might target, you know, nutrients, macromolecules, things like that, like eat less fat, not don't eat so much red meat. Um, and that that kind of has the United States in a, in a quagmire right now where our scientists are fully aware of like the health risks of eating certain yeah. kinds of food over others. And yet the government is standing mute as far as advising citizens what to do or not do, which means that marketers can fill in that vacuum and argue, no, it's fine. Just eat this. It's good. Yeah, I mean, I think people like us who do this kind of research, and I would argue like a lot of our listeners are genuinely curious people who see a headline about a nutritional study, and they will click on that and read that. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people don't, and they, you know— they they may look to official guide like eating uh, health eating guidelines of the USDA, right? And not say, oh, look at this article I saw on uh, on this website that clearly says to avoid this or that you know to avoid red meat or something like that. Where like the lobby can't touch that, right? But also, there's other ways that the government can directly influence your diet. It can say, okay, it's actually really bad to eat as much corn as we're eating in all these different ways. We're going right. to subsidize soy. Apparently, soy is, very, is not subsidized almost at all. So maybe they'll start subsidizing soy over corn, and that, that will make the, the food producers start using more soy rather than more corn, and then people will start eating soy, which may or may not be healthier. So the government can make these kind of macro decisions that affect people's diets yeah. even more than just issuing guidelines, too. Yeah, and some people say, just stick your nose out of it, and I'll do what I want. Yes, which is totally fair. It's completely fair. But if from a public health standpoint, when you look at, you know, meta-analysis that says the higher amount of ultra-processed foods you eat, the higher your risk of death, um, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, etc., it is. It's it's a problem. It's alarming, especially if you're seeing it developing earlier and earlier in younger kids who are being raised on ultra-processed foods, and as they grow into adults, are going to have no idea how to cook or what foods to eat, and won't be able to pass that on to their kids. This, they're, we're we're looking at a transitional generation right now, and it's not a transition in any kind of positive way. Right. And to be clear, we're not arguing for some nanny state where the government like outlaws ultra-processed foods, we're talking about issuing fair and honest guidelines that people can still thumb their nose at if they want to. Right, and plus also, this is not a hit job against ultra-processed foods. There's a lot of people who say, again, like we've come a really far way in um, fortifying foods through processing to cure certain diseases that used to happen, to prevent birth defects by adding folate to breakfast cereals, um, that, that... it's not that it's not processing itself. It's we don't quite know how to do it yet, or we're adding too much sugar. We're adding too many trans fats, and we need to go in and tinker with the the tastes and the flavors, and also the nutrient composition. And then we'll have everybody eating ultra processed food that actually is good for you. Whether that whether we're able to do that uh, anytime soon is that remains to be seen. Yeah, there's a journalist named David H. Friedman who in 2013 in The Atlantic said, "We're there are too many people and we can't, literally can't feed the world on this delicious whole food uh, that's affordable. So maybe the onus is on some of these companies to mess with their recipes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should look to McDonald's to tweak their recipes just a little bit, not to where it tastes like some drastically, you know, not not to push health food necessarily, but, uh, you know, there are things you can do. They pointed out that 
the smell of vanilla can mask, uh, if you reduce sugar content, it can mask that and trick you mm-hmm. into thinking that it's still just as sweet. Or uh, they're um, plant-derived compounds that can replicate uh, the effects of fat on the tongue. And basically, you experience that uh, satiation that allows you to stop eating. And he's saying, like, we can do this. We can make our ultra-processed foods a little better, at least. Yeah, and other people argue, like, just because a food is ultra-processed doesn't necessarily mean it's harmful to you. Um, There was a 2022 meta-analysis in the American Journal of Epidemiology found the highest consumption of ultra-processed foods was associated with the highest risk of death, but the highest consumption of breakfast cereal was associated with a much lower risk of death. So that kind of says like, okay, it, just because it's ultra-processed food does not make it inherently bad. And it also suggests that we may be able to make healthier ultra-processed foods. Again, the problem is it seems like nutritional science is not at a point where it can advise uh, food companies on how to actually do that right. in, a, in a way that's, that can actually replicate the, the nutrition you get from whole food. We just can't do it right now. Yeah, and the, I think the truth is if a large fast food retail chain tweaked their recipes to make them a little bit better, mm-hmm. uh, people may notice there may be a stink, and then, you know what, people would still go there and eat that stuff. Yeah, like Burger King has Impossible Burgers, and I thought those were going to last about five days, and they've yeah. been on the menu for years, so obviously some people are eating them, which, by the way, that is about as ultra-processed a food as you can find. It just happens sure. to be... Um, healthier? Non-meat. I guess. I don't know. It could be plant-based. F- plant-based. There you go. Yeah. I had a Beyond Burger the other day. It was delicious. Talk about... Um, They're really good. Do they make you gassy? I mean, I couldn't tell any difference. I'm always <laughs> farting, so who knows? <laughs> you, your bowels didn't step it up a little after? No. <laughs> Business as usual. Oh, I have to, like, sleep in another room after I really? eat, like, an Impossible Burger. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm considerate like that. Well, I haven't had Impossible. I don't know how much different they are from Beyond. It's probably about the same thing, it's right? It's basically the same. Although I will tell you this. I would bu- buzz market Incognito's chicken tenders. They are good. They nailed... Plant-based? Yes. They nailed chicken tenders. Um, like, if you pull it apart and look at it, you're like, yes, this is not chicken. But it looks yeah. kind of like chicken and it tastes like chicken. That's why they do blindfold studies. <laughs> right, exactly. But it, it, <laughs> like, it, it, it they did a really good job. I would recommend those if you can find them. All right, them. I'll have to try that yeah. because fried chicken is one of my uh, Achilles heels, yes, as we know. totally. You got anything else? I mean, we could go on about this for hours if we wanted to. Oh, I've got one more thing, Chuck. I do have one more thing. So another huge critique is that um, whole foods, non-ultra processed foods are typically much much more expensive than ultra-processed foods. And so it's a lot easier for people to be like, yeah, just eat whole foods, you know? Um, Not only is that not taking into account the the time that people don't have, it's also not taking into account the lower income that a lot of people have. So it's kind of shaming people for what they— their only option to eat is. And that's yeah. a huge criticism of of um, that kind of anti-ultra-processed food camp, too. Well, and kind of ties in with the tone deafness of uh, just spend three hours shopping and cooking right. for your family and then sit down and eat it together like the 1950s. Exactly. So that's it for ultra-processed food for now until we do another episode on it in a few years, probably. Ultra, ultra-processed foods. <laughs> right. They'll, somebody will come out with another name for junk food, and we'll do an entire new episode on it. Or we'll just get to that space food we all yearned for when we were kids, where it's like a, a dinner pill. Yeah, apparently space food sticks was like one of the first ultra-processed oh, yeah. foods. It was Pillsbury. Did you ever have those? Uh, I mean, I had that, you know, ice cream of the future stuff that eventually morphed into Dippin' Dots. These were more like a an energy bar. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I had those. Oh, well. Did it taste like ice cream? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And it was made of little tiny BBs. Who knows? It is funny, though, how much like the Army and NASA has influenced the food that we eat. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, I got nothing else, though. So hats off to NASA and the Army for coming up with the food we eat. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you want to know more about ultra-processed foods, go start reading up on it. There's a lot from both camps on the Internet to satisfy you, to satiate you. And since I said satiate, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this one of two uh, kidney transplant emails we're going to read. Uh, we're going to read the next one in the next episode. Okay. But, boy, we heard some really good stuff and got great feedback and mm-hmm. heard from some donors and some doctors. Uh, and this is from an RN in South Dakota named Danielle. Uh, hey, guys, longtime fan, first-time writer. I've been waiting seven years to be able to contribute to your lovely show. And that opportunity hit after your kidney donor rep. I'm a nurse who works in a small city hospital on the kidney transplant floor. Mm-hmm. You did a great job with this info, but I do want to inform you that uh, anti-rejection medications mm-hmm. uh, must be taken for life, although the dose might change. I think I said you can eventually get off of them, which apparently is we not We were true. just trying to be optimistic. Right. Uh, and Chuck, you said the fact of the show is that all kidneys stay in your body. But here's the fact of this listener mail. <laughs> I had a patient at one time with five kidneys in their body (laughs) because they had been through several transplants. They had chronic disease Mm -hmm. that caused each kidney to last about 10 or 15 years. And trust me, I was sure to pull up those radiology images to see. Wow. Uh, But apparently Danielle uh, believes in patient privacy because Danielle did not send those to me. That's that's nice. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for spreading tolerance, unbiased-ish information mm-hmm. and light conversation to the world very nice thanks a lot danielle thank you for saving lives and mending um broken kidneys yeah all five of them uh if you want to be like danielle and get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com stuff you should know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.